Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed, and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. It doesn't count, but it is my Father who will glorify me. You say, He is our God, but you don't even know Him. I know Him. If I said otherwise, I would be as I would be as great a liar as you, but I do know him and obey him. Your father Abraham rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. He saw it and was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. Good morning, Windsor Christian Fellowship. Happy July. So glad you're all with us today, some in person and some remotely. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Did anyone get a chance to watch the eclipse last night? What eclipse? It was a lunar eclipse. Signs in the heavens and signs in the earth, isn't that what the Bible says? Okay, so we've been working through deception the last little while, uh, while we've been talking about different concepts of deception, and today we're going to conclude that series on deception. Essentially, what I'd like to do is, today's is called the body of evidence, so we want to look at some of the evidences that are connected to the scriptures. And we see that in the culture right now, there's a lot of, I'm going to call it push and shove, there's a lot of division. There's a lot of division even in churches right now. Uh, people are split on many things and they're polarizing into camps. And I think it's really important that we're all in Camp Jesus. Okay? And within that, there's a, a, a love-based response that Jesus wants us to have with others. And right now, there's arenas that I think Christianity is being attacked in the world. And, and it's been consistent for many years, but you see this coming to the forefront more and more. And I just want to talk about some of these foundational things so that we can know that in Christianity, our foundation is firm, it's true, and it's a solid truth that God has revealed to us. So when we're looking at these arenas of evidence, we want to make sure that we don't fall prey to simple deception, you know? And it's amazing to me that people can be drinking their coffee in the morning, an idea pops in their head, and they put out a, a video on it, and all of a sudden everybody goes, oh, that must be truth. But we, don't, we have to learn how to discern what is truth. We have to discern what's right. We have to discern what's wrong. We do this through the Word of God. We look to the Word of God. So in our world today, there's a huge challenge against the authenticity of the Scriptures. So we're seeing more and more as time progresses that people are challenging the authority of the Bible, the authenticity of the Bible as God's word or his revelation to us as people. And I want you to understand, Jesus is the focus of all 66 books of the Bible. 
The whole Bible is written about Jesus, right? From Genesis through to Revelations, it's really telling the story of Christ. And it was written by 40 people over 1,500 years. Think about that for a minute. 40 different authors, 1,500 years of time to assemble God's revelation to mankind. I don't know any other book that comes close to that. And then we look at proofs to validate the authenticity of the scripture, and that's what I want to kind of look at today. And the first thing that I want to look at is translations and original languages. So when we're talking about the Word of God, how many know you are reading a translation, most likely, of the original texts? Because we know the scriptures were written in Hebrew and Aramaic. They were written in Greek, translated into Latin for the New Covenant. And those were the original languages, and we don't really speak Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Greek today. Scholars learn the languages. Um, the rest of us refer to the books that the scholars put out about the languages, like concordances and thesaur uh, lexicons. Now, how many of you know that a dictionary will give you all possible definitions of a word? Right? When you look up a word in the dictionary, they list all the possible definitions. That's a concordance. The lexicons on the other side of that, they'll tell you exactly which definition of that word works in the context based on the sentence structure, based on what the author is trying to communicate because they understand the language. And it's really important that we understand some of these things when we look at the scriptures because when people say, well, the Bible's been changed so the Bible's not accurate, I personally think they don't know what they're talking about. But we have to have the evidences so we look at the evidence to draw our conclusions. When we're looking at translations, how many know when you translate from one language to another, there's two trains of thought that you can do that. You can do a literal word-for-word -word translation where you translate word, 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 word. But sometimes when you go from one language to another, it doesn't render as nicely, but it's accurate according to the text, and there's nothing wrong with word-to-word -word translations. And then other times you take the whole idea or the thought, they call it thought-for-thought -thought translation. And, and they translate the heart of what's being said into the other language. Um, as far as a literal rendering, sometimes it's considered a little less accurate, but as far as a catch in the heart of it, it's usually more accurate in the language that it's written in. Both are acceptable forms of translation. Did everyone hear me say that? And there's a spectrum, and you have some Bibles that are over here that are acceptable translations that are word for word. You know, New American Standard's a good version of that. You have other Bibles that are maybe on the, the thought for thought side of things. I like New Living. You see me teach from that a lot. My wife likes the Passion Translation. It's a newer translation, but it is a translation. And then from there, you get into paraphrase, which we don't build doctrine on. So when you look at your Message Bible and some of the ones along those lines that are paraphrased, we don't build doctrine on those, but they can shed light and give insight into what God's doing. From there... We know that the Old Testament was assembled by the Hebrew people and existed at the time of Christ. And Jesus quoted over 75% of the books in the, in the Old Covenant uh, while he was here, giving them a little bit of authenticity. And there's lots of reasons that we can look to the texts of the Old Testament. For instance, when I was in Israel, I went to the museum, and they had in a temperature and pressure controlled uh, sealed glass container an entire copy complete of the book of Isaiah. I think it was in Aramaic. It might have been Hebrew, but I think it was Aramaic. And what we're reading in English today is an exact copy 
of that Aramaic text that is dated to before the time of Christ. So no one's going to ever tell me that the book of Isaiah has been changed because I saw an authentic original document dated to before the time that Christ was here that says exactly what I'm reading today. And that kind of leads me to the next portion of this conversation because when we're looking at the Bible as far as the scriptures are concerned and translations and original language, the study of ancient documents is called textual criticism. And what we do is there's, and I'm going to simplify this greatly, but there's two basic premises that we look at. We say the more copies you have that all say the same thing, the more accurate you can presume your text is. And the second thing that we look at is we look at how close to the time it was written from the time that we have a copy. So for instance, does anyone have a book at home that's maybe 100 years old or older? I see a, I see a couple of hands. Okay. I, I have some books that are 100 years old. How about 20 years old? Do you have a book that's 20 years old? Some of you know what books are. Anymore, we get everything online. <laughs> But here's my thought. If I was to suggest to you that the book you have sitting on your shelf at home has been changed since the time that you received it, so someone came and changed the letters on the pages while you were sleeping, what would you say to me? No, yeah, you're crazy, Pastor? Having a bad day? Need more coffee? <laughs> so what happens is this. It's silly, asinine really, for us to think that the letters on the pages of the book sitting on our shelves at home have been changed in the middle of the night by these gremlins or whatever, I don't know. Um, you know, that, that's out there, right? But to suggest that the Bible isn't authentic is about as equally out there, and I'm going to explain why. When you look at the ancient texts, let's just take Plato. Not the stuff your kids play with, the philosopher guy. Do you remember him? We have about seven copies of his writings. I think it's seven. And from that, there's like over a thousand years from the time that we have copies from the time he wrote it. So he wrote it here. A thousand years later, we have a copy of his writings. Let's go to the next one. Aristotle, his frenemy. We have some copies of Aristotle's writings that were written here, but they're like 1,400 years later, we have actual manuscripts that are dated 1,400 years later. And I think, I can't remember, I think it's around 40 of his, we don't have very many of Aristotle's writings. And then there was a guy named Homer. How many of you remember Homer? He wrote the Odyssey, story of the Trojan War. Oh, you're missing out on a good read. Homer wrote the Odyssey, and when we look at Homer's Odyssey, there's a few people, and they usually get laughed at, but um, that believe that there was two Homers, an earlier Homer and a later Homer. Most scholars agree that he just matured in his writing style as he went through the story over the time of his life. But we have about 500 years from the time Homer wrote it to the time we have copies of, of Homer's documents. And my point in telling you this is simply this. Plato, Aristotle, Homer. If you were to go to a school, university level of institution of higher learning and go onto the platform and suggest that Plato wasn't really Plato and it's not authentic and it's, it's been altered. If you were to suggest that Aristotle's writings have been corrupted, if you were to suggest that Homer wasn't really Homer, you'd be discredited. You wouldn't be asked to come back. Your reputation would take a hit. 
and the scholars would generally laugh at you. They'd laugh you off the stage. How are we doing? Our New Testament alone, we have original manuscripts from 100 years, 100 AD, about 100 years after the time they were written. Essentially, we have original manuscripts. So the time period is um, considerably less that we have documents from. So as far as textual criticism is concerned, it's closer to the time it was written. It's more authentic or more accurate. And by the way, we have 80 times more proof of our New Testament than any other document in antiquity. So while we may have 680 copies of uh, Homer's Odyssey in existence, we have over 24,000 copies of our New Testament in existence, our fragments. So anyone that says that the Bible's been changed, they really haven't done their homework and they don't understand the study of ancient documents. We have more proof for our Bible than any other document in history. It's been the most criticized book, the most looked at book, the most discussed book, the most sold book, the most distributed book in the world. So moving on from there, <clears throat> from translation and languages and the accuracy of the Word of God and the authenticity of it, <clears throat> we look at things like the accuracy regarding the historical record and the scientific nature of the Word of God or the Bible. So like when Micah in Micah 5.2 was prophesying the city that Jesus was going to be born in 700 years before it happened, like how does that happen? Can you tell me? Can you tell me, Yesi, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. That's prophetically calling that Jesus the Messiah, who always was from the distant past, will come from you from Bethlehem. That's where he's going to be born. Think about that for a second. That was, that's a messianic prophecy, but... How did God arrange that 700 years in advance? Can you tell me what's going to happen 700 years from now? Who's going to be born in the city of Windsor? No, not that good. How about David? He spoke 500 years before the Romans invented crucifixion about the crucifixion of the Messiah. They hadn't even invented it yet, and he prophesied it, that Christ was going to be crucified. Look at Psalms 22, 16. Or you could go to even Psalms 34, 21, and there's others. But, but see, it was a thousand years before it happened, 500 years before it was invented, and David wrote down in the Psalms with great accuracy what was going to happen, that not a bone in his body was going to be broken. How about this one? Let's go to Job 36, verse 27, 28, and 29. He draws up water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. Who can understand the spreading of the clouds and thunder that rolls from, forth from the heavens? See, it sounds a lot like the hydrologic cycle. You all know, right? Water evaporates, it goes into clouds, the clouds go over land, the clouds drop the rain down on the earth, it goes into the rivers, which goes back to the sea where it evaporates, and there's a cycle there. This is science. The Bible talked about that thousands of years before the scientists discovered that's actually how it works. My point is very simple here. When the Bible talks about history, geography, or science, it is accurate as it was written, and it reflects truth. 
We went down to the Creation Museum a few years ago in the Ark. My family took my kids down there. And they have an interesting point on this. They say, it's the same data, but you have a different starting point. So if you have a Christian worldview and you believe that God's the creator, you look at the data and your starting point is here, so therefore you conclude about the creator. If you don't believe that God exists and you look at the data, you only have one conclusion. But it's not that there was a creator. And what happens is, when we look at things like, let's just say, the fossil record, because that one's easy. How many of you are aware that the whole theory of evolution falls apart based on one statement? There are no transitional fossils. You show me a scientist that has found a transitional fossil in a report that says that, I'll be stunned. Why? Because there are no transitional fossils. Because God made everything as it is. And it didn't evolve over time into something else. See, when we, when we, yes, this is good news. This is exciting. But see, Darwin himself said, yeah, I realize there's a, a problem with the fossil record based on my theory, theory, not observed science, but interpretive science, okay? And, and what happens is he thought as technology advanced that they would find data to support his research, but actually as technology has advanced, they have found data to contradict his research. And because they have now disproven the fact, it's fact, there's no transitional fossils. The other thing I find interesting about the fossil record, well, there's a few things, but one thing I find interesting is, think about this. If we evolved slowly over millions of years, billions of years, you would think that the different layers would have this progression of, you know, these little one-celled amoeba things, and then these little single-cell whatever, and then they get a little bigger, then they come out of the water and go onto the land, and then, you know, as the layers go, we would have this progression. All life basically came about, I think it's the Cambrian period, boom. All life as we know it is in one single arena of the fossil record. And another thing that I find interesting is, how can a tree become fossilized? No, think about it. Have you ever left a tree in your backyard for a while? What happens to it? Yeah, it rots, it breaks down. If it takes millions of years for fossils to form, how in the world is a tree gonna become a fossil? Because if it took millions of years to get this much dirt, or however much dirt is in the layer, I mean, think about it. That tree would be long gone before the sediment came up high enough for that, unless fossils happen quicker than we think they do. Actually, I think they do. But see, what we have to remember when we're talking about these things is science is what you can observe. Can everyone say what I can observe? Anytime you get into interpretation of things, it's religion. It's not science. So evolution is simply a religion. It is not science. In fact, even Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, said what? 
the theory of evolution is now dead in the water. I can't follow it. So I think he agreed that, or thought that maybe life was seeded here by aliens on crystals. Sounds like Romans 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. When we look at the scriptures, it's very valid. It's very authentic. It's very accurate it is as it was written. When we go into the next thing, the historical account of Jesus is being challenged in our culture today. Has anyone challenged the authenticity of Jesus, his birth, his death, his resurrection? Have you ever heard comments about that? I heard an atheist say, um, Jesus didn't exist. He's just a figure. He didn't actually walk on the earth. Now, I love talking to those people. They need to learn how to read, okay? And I'm going to tell you why. There is 12 non-biblical sources that I know about that talk about Jesus directly, including the historian Josephus, who was a Jew, including Tacitus, who was talking about how um, Rome was burning and, and the, the emperor blamed it on the Christians, which was linked to Christ, including Pliny the Younger, including Thallus, including actually many others. There's many other extra-biblical writers that referenced Christ, and we have the preservation of those documents today from that time. Why would so many, not, not to mention anything we have in Christianity with the Bible, with all the eyewitnesses of the Bible and the authenticity of the text, but take the Bible and set it aside? There's lots of evidence that Christ walked upon the planet. Jesus walked on the planet. We know this to be true, but people try to create their own narrative. They try to create their own history. And we always have to be careful when we see people trying to rewrite history. I think Jesus existed. There's been an attack on the virgin birth of Christ. You know, it talks about that in Isaiah 7:14. That was a messianic prophecy. And again, there was like 54 prophecies about Christ, his birth, where he was going to be born, how he was going to be born, what family he was going to be in. Hundreds of years, in some cases a thousand years before. And, and very specifically, they pointed to how he was going to die, when he was going to die. I'm not sure how God arranged that. I mean, think about this for a second. We're going to get to his death, but how did God arrange for Jesus to die at the exact time that the Passover lamb was going to be sacrificed in the temple? How do you arrange that when you're dealing with a court system and when you're dealing with the legal system? And God prophesied that it was going to happen hundreds of years ahead of time, and it happened just as he said it was going to. The virgin birth is a miracle that was documented by a physician. A doctor documented the virgin birth. Read the Gospel of Luke. You know what Luke's profession was? He was a doctor. Luke was a physician. He believed that Jesus came through a virgin, and he recorded it. He was also a historian, but... And now... I've seen over the years where people have tried to discredit Luke's writings. But as archaeology has gone on further and further, they keep proving everything that he said right down to the very smallest detail. Luke did a very good job of recording things exactly as they were. And as people have tried to disprove it, they've actually been disproven themselves. Their theories fall apart because the archaeological discoveries affirm everything that he said. And by the way, early Christianity affirmed the virgin birth right from the beginning. The death of Jesus was recorded in the scriptures. 
in great detail. The resurrection of Jesus. We have enough evidence for the resurrection of Christ that I'm pretty sure it would stand up in a court of law today. Assuming someone didn't pay off the judge. And even back in that day, it seemed like there was a little bit of that going on. <laughs> there is many eyewitness accounts of Jesus walking around alive. Over 500 people saw him alive after he was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. Any intellectually honest scholar cannot look at the evidence and deny that the resurrection of Jesus happened. The only way you can do that is if you make some philosophical assumptions through your own bias. The data adds up in favor of the resurrection. Why am I telling you this? Because when people attack the person and the work of Christ, they need to have their data, they need to have their facts. And the problem is, the facts are overwhelmingly in our favor as Christians. And then we see today the continuing work of the Holy Spirit is being challenged. And I want to go back to this passage that Victoria and Vanessa read for us earlier. In John chapter 8. And I want to give you a little bit of a foundation for this. Because if you back up to the verses a little bit before. I'm almost there. In verse 21 through 31. You've got this conversation Jesus is having with a group of Jewish people. And some of them believed in him and some of them didn't. But through the course of that conversation, I'm not going to read through 21. I'm going to pick up in 31. But what happened was some of them ended up believing in Jesus as the Messiah. Can everyone say as the Messiah? But the problem was their definition of Messiah was based on their own bias and their own thoughts of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. And for the Jews at that time, the Messiah was the one who was going to come politically on the scene and overthrow the Romans and restore Israel to its rightful place as a sovereign nation. They missed all the prophetic words that pointed to the Messiah dying for the sins of mankind, for him being a sacrifice for humanity. So he's talking to the ones that believe in him as the Messiah, but they're not believing his words about himself. They're believing their own point of view on it. So they've created their own version of what the Messiah is, but they believed in him. And then the big challenge they had was, who was he, his identity? Who is this Jesus, and why is he here? Like, there was an identity crisis. They didn't understand the identity of Christ. And I assure you, if you don't understand your identity in Christ, you're going to be a confused individual. You're going to struggle. And in verse 31 and 32, you know, what are the teachings of Jesus that we have to adhere to? And what is truth? And then he goes on and he starts establishing it. But keep in mind this statement. You are truly my disciples if what? If you believe in me? If you believe I'm the Messiah? Does that qualify as you, because you go to WCF? How are, you, how are you truly his disciple? Faithful to what? To his teachings. So it's not just professing Christ. There's an obedience factor where we actually have to apply his teachings to our life. I can think of two commands he gave us. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Put God first. And then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. What does this look like for us? So then you go down. Let's go to verse 34. I'll read. This, this is an incredible story that they're talking about here because... Jesus is basically saying to them, 
that they are slaves to sin. I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And they take offense to this. They get offended in verse 35. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. Verse 36. If the son sets you free, you're truly free. I love the language Jesus uses. Okay? Because what he's doing is he's painting this picture here that if you want to be a son of God, you can't be a slave to sin. But the only way you can find freedom is if the son of God, Jesus speaking, sets you free. So he's saying that if you want to be free, you can only be free in me, and you can only be free by following my commands and teachings. That's how freedom comes. But they were trying to explain to him and argue with him, no, we are sons of Abraham. And in verse 37, yes, I realize that you're descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. Verse 38 says, I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. So the Jews are arguing with him, saying, no, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus is saying, no, because if you were children of Abraham, you would respond to me the way Abraham responded to me. And Abraham looked forward to the day that I was going to be walking on the planet. And even now, Abraham up in heaven is rejoicing that I'm here. And I'm speaking to you truth. And this is the funniest thing. Jesus is giving them truth, and they can't see it. They're rejecting the very truth that he's presenting to them. You ever talk to someone about truth and you're laying it out for them and it's really clear to you and everyone else in the room, but that one person just isn't getting it? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you've been there? I mean, I don't suggest we do this, but sometimes you think to yourself, I just want to smack them. We don't do that. That's not a good Christian response, but we think that. Then we wrestle with our thoughts and cast it down. It's interesting because they are insisting that they have been free and they've never been a slave to anyone. Isn't that what it says? Let's go to the next verse, 39. Our fathers Abraham, they declared, no, Jesus replied, for if you were really children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. Then they said, um, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I've come to you from God, not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. And then he even links them. He says, you're children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. You always hated truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it's consistent with his character, so he's a liar and the father of lies. So when I tell you the truth, you naturally, you just naturally don't believe me. Which of you can truthfully accuse me of sin? Since I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God, but you don't listen because you don't belong to God. Then they get upset with him. Now watch. I find it amazing that they're insisting, no, 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 you're lying. We are of Abraham, and we've never been slaves to anyone. Take a step back. The current geopolitical situation where this took place, they were slaves of the Romans who were occupying the land and the Jewish people were under the enslavement of the Roman people at that time. And if we back up a little bit further, do you remember Moses? Remember Moses? 400 years God's people were in slavery. 400 years. So for them to say they've never been slaves to anyone, boy, did they bend the truth a little bit how quickly they forget where they came from. 
And then Jesus is presenting them with truth, but it disagrees with their personal truth because they're recreating God's word. They're making their own version of what it's supposed to look like. So what do they do? They start calling him names. The people retorted, you Samaritan devil. How many times in the culture today, when you tell someone the truth, do they start calling you names? Usually that's a good indication to me that I'm on the right track and they're losing the argument because if they don't have any data to come back with, all they can do is call me names. I've been called many things. But I want you to understand something. The Jews at this point were having a really hard time understanding that salvation was not based on their family of origin nor the church that they grew up in. See, just because they were sons of Abraham and part of the nation of Israel, that was not what was going to save them. They needed Jesus to come and be their savior. It's a personal encounter with Christ. And too many people create their own version of reality where they base their reality on the context of their own situation or circumstance. And really, it's your lived experience in Christ that's going to differentiate you from the world system that we live in. It's the changed life that we have, because why? In the old covenant where these people were living, they were slaves to sin, were they not? Were they not slaves to sin? They were slaves to sin. And they couldn't get through to become sons and daughters until they got rid of the sin, and they needed the son to bring them freedom. It wasn't a human rights issue, it was a sin issue. It was only the work that Jesus did at the cross that could have liberated them from what was going on in this situation. And they couldn't see that despite him laying it out very clearly to them. So they're blinded by their sin. They're blinded by their pride because they think I'm a children of Abraham, so therefore I'm in God's club. I'm, I'm, I'm in good standing with God. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, actually, I came from God. And oh, by the way, I was there when the devil got kicked out of heaven. I saw him fall as lightning. And oh, by the way, I can talk about his character because God judged him for being a liar and there was no truth in him. And oh, by the way, if you're not receiving the truth that I'm presenting to you, you must be operating in the same spirit that Satan was operating in and therefore you're liars too. And therefore you're acting just like your father Satan. Can you see why they got a little upset with him? Or a lot? Some things never change. Even today, we end up with people calling us names and making false accusations because they disagree. But there's some things that we have to understand. Jesus is not looking for superficial acknowledgement of who he was, is. In other words, he's not looking for people to just agree and say, yes, Jesus is God. He wants people to live a lifestyle that is consistent with that faith profession. That's true Christianity. This is becoming a disciple. This is becoming a follower of Jesus. This is taking on his nature and his character. It's not just saying a prayer and saying, guess what? I believe in Jesus. That's good. That's a good step. We need to take a step in that direction. You need to believe in Jesus. You should. There's lots of evidence, as we talked about earlier, that says he really was God's son. He really did come here to die for your sin and for mine, and he made a way of escape for us from our sinfulness. But when we're looking at it, it's taking on the nature. It's living the Christian life. It's applying the principles that he taught to our life on a day-in, day-out basis 
that actually makes us a disciple or a follower. Lots of people believe in Jesus, but not a lot of people live the Christian life. That's why the Bible says the way is broad, but the path to heaven is narrow, and there's not very many that find it. Because lots of people deceive themselves into thinking they're okay with God, but they're not living the Christian life. They profess to be Christian, but in their actions, in their attitude, in the way that they live, they're not living Christian. You see where the rubber meets the road, how that can create problems for us? This passage is almost comical in a sense because we the readers can see how blind people can really be when they put their ideas above God's. Even when Jesus gave them clear, practical proofs and statements, they couldn't get it. And sometimes when we're in the world today, we give people clear, practical truths and they just don't get it. They don't understand. But doctrine, I will say, people can argue about your doctrine, and they do, but they can never argue with your lived experience, your testimony. Okay? And in Revelations 12, 11, they've defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. They did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. See, Jesus is alive He's still working in the earth. He's still working in our lives. He's still transforming people. And we have to have this understanding. So we're talking about this today because there's a lot of delusion going out in the world that's causing a lot of polarization, even in the church, where people question the established truths and the authority of the scriptures. Once you start moving outside of God's established truth, you get into error every time. And then it's humanism that's disguising itself as religion, and that creates many many complications in our faith. Because humanism is man's way. It doesn't blend with God's way. That mixture never works. It always leads to selfishness and sin. So for us as humans, what we have to do is follow God's way, follow God's plan. And don't easily be misled by this wind of doctrine or this wind of doctrine. We want to stay true to God's word, which we've established today is authentic and it's relevant for our lives today. So why don't you stand with me and I'm going to read one more verse while you do that. In Psalms 16.11, if you grab your communion elements... You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. There's a joy that you will only find in the presence of God. And there's a lot of people today that haven't got that joy. Thank you. They haven't got that joy. They're not happy. But I have to ask the question, if there's joy in his presence, are we really spending time in his presence? And right now, I just want to take a moment and let's enter into his presence. The Spirit of God's right with us, especially as Christians. He's right there with us. He's helping us navigate through life. But if your joy level's low, you need to spend more time in his presence. Because it says in his presence, there's fullness of joy. And there's too many people today, they're too worried about what everyone else is doing. They're too distracted with what's going on in the world around them. 
and they're not listening to the Spirit of God, they're listening to the world system and all the solutions and answers it has for them. And it's not bringing you to a place of peace and joy, it's bringing you to a place of anxiety and stress and depression and discouragement. And there's relationships that are challenged, especially some marriages right now, because people have their eyes and their focus off of Jesus. So we're going to come to the table. We're going to come to the covenant meal that we have. And he made a covenant with us all when he died on the cross. He cut a covenant with his own body and his own blood. But he instituted this remembrance, this celebratory meal, so we can remember the work that Christ did at the cross so that each and every one of us can stand in his presence and there can be joy complete in our hearts we can have a confident assurance that we know that we can be with him. So Father, I thank you for the bread in our hands. And as we've broken the bread like your body was broken, that healing is being released in our bodies, that sickness has to flee in the name of Jesus. And Psalms 91 says, no plague will come near our household. Lord, we stand in faith and we activate hope that you're restoring all things in our life mind, body, and spirit, and that you've rebuked the curse because of the work that you did at the cross. So we thank you that as your brokenness made a way for us to be made whole, we can receive that by faith today in the name of Jesus. And he took the cup and said, this is the blood of my new covenant blood of the new covenant. His blood was shed to initiate the new covenant. Father, I thank you that your blood made a way for us to enter into your presence. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. Father, I thank you we don't have to be confused. We don't have to be anxious or afraid. We don't have to be depressed and discouraged. Lord, the blood of Jesus made a way for your joy to come into our heart, for your peace to rest upon us, that we can receive your love and we have a hope of a good future with you. So Father, I speak right now to any thought that acknowledge itself against the knowledge of Christ and we cast it down in the name of Jesus. Jesus, let your light shine forth through your people. Let your power be released. Let faith arise and let hope arise. And let your presence, Lord, surround us. And today, in unity and faith, we partake together declaring that Jesus is Lord over our lives, our families, our church, our city, and our nation. In the name of Jesus. At this time, we receive our tithes and offerings, and I know we do things a little different now. Some of you are donating online, and some of the ushers will have a bucket near the door. And I thank you, Windsor Christian Fellowship, for your faithfulness in the area of tithes and offerings. And let's pray. Father, I thank you that as we sow in faith, Lord, and enjoy that you rebuke the devourer from our lives and you multiply seed and give seed to the sower. 
in each one, Lord, that's giving sacrificially, Lord, just like the widow did. Thank you that you multiply their seed and put a blessing upon them and your favors upon them because you provide for every need that we have and you preserve us in this day that we live. Thank you for your faithfulness in this area. And Lord, as they go, I thank you that they go in safety, they go in peace, and that your people go with joy today, knowing that they have a firm foundation, that they stand on the truth of your word and the manifestation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God here on earth and the work he did at the cross that set us free and liberated us from hell's grip. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've never given your life to Christ and you'd like to, please come talk to me at the altar. Love to shake your hand and pray with you. And the rest of you, go in peace. God bless you. We'll look forward to seeing you next time. Have an awesome week.